going to go deeper into Bible study tonight. And this is actually a passage that many of you are going to be familiar with. This is uh, Mark chapter 10. And uh, it's a story that Jesus encounters a man, and we don't know his name, but we do know that he's rich, we do know that he's young, and we do know that he's a ruler. From the gospel account passages that we can paste together, we at least get that glimpse of him. And I want to talk to you about this story tonight, because I think it ties in well with, uh, with a Sunday school passage that we studied this morning, if you were here for Sunday school. And over in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and uh, verse 10, there's a verse that stood out to me for quite some time as I followed Jesus. And uh, it's a good memory verse. By the way, our Sunday school books have memory verses in them every week. And this is the memory verse for the week, if you didn't know that. It says this, The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Now you and I might think that that verse is chiefly about money when we hear it. I mean, after all, when somebody talks about money from the pulpit or when you hear a lesson taught about it at church, you'll hear that verse come up quite a few times. I remember as a teenager learning this verse and hearing my youth pastor teach us about this verse. And I remember what he said because it stood out to me. He said, the Bible does not teach that money is evil, but rather that the love of money is evil. Is that new news to anybody? Most of us heard that quite a bit. If it's new news to you, it's a pretty good way to think about it because that's how Paul is talking. So the verse isn't so much about what's in your pocketbook as it is what's in your heart. And it's not a teaching about the value of paper currency, but rather one about the affections of a person's soul. It's an issue of the heart. What we need to be reminded of is that our contentment, our purpose, and our treasure is not to be rooted in the temporary things of this world but in the eternal person of God's Son, Jesus Christ. He Himself is our treasure. So tonight we're going to look at a tendential passage in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, is where we're going to begin reading. And as you're turning there, maybe some of you already found it, most of you probably have, um, but... As we're going there, I want to share with you this main thought that the passage presents. And it's that Jesus loves you, and He wants you to love Him more than anything. Jesus loves you, and He wants you to love Him more than anything. So how do we learn to love Jesus more than anything? Well, let's read. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to Him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. And honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. 
But looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, There is one thing that you lack. Go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. How do we learn to love Jesus more than anything? We learn to love Jesus by treasuring him. First, we must treasure him more than we do our stuff. Let me just think about this story and what happens. There's a fellow who's pretty well known in his community because he's got some money. He may be young, maybe he was handsome, we don't know. But he's of repute. He's got people under his charge, servants who help him care for his estate. And he comes to Jesus seeking an answer for a question. It's a common practice in that day and time to go to a rabbi that you respected. He even gives Jesus a term of endearment and shows that he respects Jesus' authority by calling him a good teacher. And his question is simple. What can I do to get eternal life? I want to be part of the heavenly inheritance. How can my name be included in that list? And Jesus, before he answered his question, wanted the man to know who he was. He said, you don't call me good unless you know what you're talking about. There's nobody that's good except for God alone. Jesus didn't tell the man not to call him good. He just said, I need you to realize if you're calling me good, who you are admitting that I am. And if Jesus really is God in flesh, and if that man has come to terms with what Jesus is saying, then he's confronted with the truth, no matter how it shakes. Right? He's submitting himself to Jesus' authority. If Jesus is good, that is, if he is holy, just as God the Father in heaven is holy, because he is God in human flesh, then he's got to answer to Jesus, and he's got to listen to the answer Jesus gives to his question. Jesus doesn't give him any new information in verse 19. There's nothing new there. In fact, Jesus tells him, you already know the commandments that God's given you. He gives the list from Exodus chapter 20, verses 12 through 16, including the Ten Commandments. He also quotes this do not defraud commandment from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 21. And the man goes, that must be pretty good. You'll notice in verse 20, he doesn't want to have to go round about with Jesus again. So instead of calling him good teacher, he simply says, teacher. Teacher, I've kept all of these things even from my youth, from my younger days. And it was like this smile came to his face because he thought, I've got it all now. I'm rich in this world and I have eternal life. And it doesn't say that Jesus was mad at him. It doesn't say that Jesus was upset with him. It doesn't say that Jesus thought he was stupid. It doesn't say that Jesus hated him. It says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, look, really there's, there's one issue then. If you can admit that I am the good teacher, 
That is that I am God in flesh. And if you can admit that you need to keep God's commandments and you say you've kept them, there's, there's just one thing. You need to sell everything that you've got. You need to give all of that money to the poor and then you need to follow me. And I imagine at that point, this guy's jaw hit the floor and he goes, huh? You mean all of my stuff? You mean all of my livestock, all of my houses, all of my slaves, all of my clothes, everything that I've saved up, all the business ventures that I'm a part of, the things that I have a share in? You mean I need to give up everything that I have and just follow you? Just think about the scene, right? Verse 17 says Jesus is getting ready to set out on a journey. What's Jesus and his disciples doing? They're packing up stuff and getting ready to move. Jesus says, hey, just go and, and get rid of everything and come and follow me. And I imagine to this man, he just had to take a step back. And then his shock turned to sorrow. Verse 22 mentions how saddened he was. Even to the point of grief. That's a word that's used throughout the New Testament when somebody has experienced mourning over the loss of a loved one. He is grieving because he's going to have to give up his stuff. He owned much property. And he didn't want to give it away. He had houses and lands. How could he possibly sell those things? Jesus knew that this man had earthly riches beyond anybody else in his own present company. Jesus knew that this man considered himself a righteous person because he had kept the commandments. And you know, the guy may have been rich and he might have not gotten everything, but I don't think he would have lied to Jesus to his face and told Jesus he kept the commandments if he hadn't. He was probably a really good guy. But there was one big problem. He did not love the Lord. He loved his stuff more. And here's where this hits us head on. If you come to Jesus so that you can get more than you've ever had before, you need to realize that Jesus is going to ask you to give more than you ever have before. His goal is not to increase your bank balance, but to multiply your heavenly reward. The only way that can happen is if you stop hoarding up for yourself riches on earth and begin investing in the eternal, bearing the fruit of the Spirit and producing followers of Jesus Christ. Now we hear this passage and some of us think, I have to sell everything and give all my money away. And look, I'll be honest with you, some of you may need to sell everything that you have and give all of the money to the poor in Lawrence County. Jesus may be telling you to do that. I'm not telling you you have to do that, but Jesus may be telling you specifically you need to. But even if Jesus is not asking you to do that, he is asking each and every one of us to choose to follow him whatever the cost. I mean, this is not a new call that Jesus gave to people, is it? 
he finds a guy sitting in a tax booth. What does he say? Finish up this season and then you come follow me, right? He says, no, follow me. What does he expect Levi to do? Leave his clients and go follow Jesus. He's got a group of fishermen who have just found, by the way, the mother load of fish because Jesus has helped them figure out where to fish from in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus says, follow me. And so the disciples decide to haul in their catch and go sell it in the marketplace and make sure that their family business is well taken care of, right? No. Immediately they drop their nets and they follow Jesus. It may cost a lot. It may cost everything, but it's worth it all. If the rich young ruler was so happy with his riches, then why did he leave Jesus with his hands still full and his heart still empty? Why did he approach Jesus with excitement about inheriting eternal life, but exit stage left with sorrow when he was told the way that he could acquire it? I mean, Jesus didn't say you can't have it. He said, here, you want eternal life? I'll freely and happily give it to you. And that guy goes, no thanks. He wanted his stuff more than he wanted Jesus. And that is simply a sad and depressing way to live. If you want your stuff more than you want the Savior, you end up saving money and losing the message of salvation. So instead of adding Jesus as a subcontractor to your business life, what business venture do you need to drop so that he maintains sovereignty in your life? Instead of asking Jesus to bless you by making you prosper, consider how Jesus is asking you to bless him and others by voluntarily choosing to make yourself the poorer. Jesus loves you. And he wants you to love him more than anything. So treasure Jesus more than you do your stuff. Second, and this is the back end of this passage in verses 23 through 31. Treasure Jesus more than you do self. Treasure Jesus more than you do self. Verse 23 says, And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. And here's why. They thought, man, if God's blessed people with all this money, then surely they're God's children. And surely those rich people are going to get into heaven. Just look at the good life they live here and now. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And by the way, Jesus is not mentioning some little hole in the wall through the city gate that was called the eye of a needle that camels would crouch down on their knees and crawl through. That's just some made-up hocus-pocus that some commentator wrote because Jesus' comment is so outlandish. Jesus is really giving the illustration that it's easier for a camel, like one of the biggest animals over there in Jesus' present day and time, to go through the smallest space possible, the eye of a needle. And the disciples are astonished. I mean, just absolutely shocked. Verse 26, they're even more astonished and said to him, Who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, 
It is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. We look around and we think, there's no way. But God looks down and yes, there is. I've made the way. Jesus is the way. In verse 28, Peter began to say to Jesus, oh, Jesus, behold, we have left everything and followed you. You remember? Peter was one of those fishermen who dropped his nets immediately and decided to follow Jesus. And I think that Peter wasn't just trying to boast about how great and wonderful his love for Jesus was. I think Peter was simply telling Jesus, Jesus, I love you enough to have given you everything, even my life. Jesus answered Peter, and truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And I imagine that Peter was pretty happy with himself and with Jesus' words until he heard that last statement. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. I mean, that's the paradox of the Christian life. It's that those who are first will be last, and the last first. It's a difficult statement to apply to our lives, isn't it? I mean, how can one altruistically put themselves last in line without hoping the teacher remarks about their humble attitude and makes them the line leader, right? So you've seen this happen probably if you work with kids here at church or you've been to the schools at all. You know, the first day of kindergarten, all the students are fighting. I'm going to be first in line. I'm going to go to the lunchroom. I'm going to lead the recess. And the teacher says, nope, nope, nope. And she calls on the real quiet and shy one that's just scared to death to be there because it's the first day of kindergarten. Well, thank you so much, Jake. How about you come on up here to the front of the line? I was scared to death to go to school every year, by the way. And so you get to the front of the line. And then what happened the next time it was time to line up to go somewhere? You didn't have people verbally fighting over who could get to be front of the line because they saw what had happened before. And so they would stand there Nice and quiet and straight as could be, hoping that the teacher would say, Thank you, so-and-so, you can be the line leader. It kept the teacher sane, but it drives the kids nuts. Why? Because every single one of them, every single time, wants to be in the very front, in first place. And what Jesus presents to Peter and the other disciples is simply astonishing. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So he's telling them that they need to desire to be last, to put others above themselves and to put God above their own interests. But even by doing that, aren't they trying to make themselves first? How can one voluntarily submit themselves to others and subject themselves to the point that they value Jesus above their own life? without wanting to be lifted up above others for their personal spiritual achievements or rewarded by Christ for their faithful service. 
Jesus' words challenge all of us to a process of lifelong discipleship in which we are ever decreasing and He is ever increasing. He wants us to willingly choose to lay down our lives, diminishing ourselves, in order to exalt the one true God and magnify His glory. There's a point in time in which the students begin not to care anymore who's first in line, because it really doesn't matter. Now, some students never grew out of this. I suspect that Nick was one of those. Is he in here? Can I pick on him? He's up top. I'm just kidding. But there's some that probably don't. But by and large, they do. Because they realize, we're all going to the same place. We're going to get food at lunch. We're going to get to play at recess. We're going to get to go to the music room. In fact, there's times that some of them probably want to be in the back of the line anyways. But there comes a time when, when they, don't, they don't care anymore. And then there comes a time when those students don't have to line up and put a finger over their mouth and one finger in the air to do the quiet sign as they walk down the hallway. And they don't have to line up on the orange tiles as they walk down the halls of the elementary school because they've learned how to walk and get to where they're going. What Jesus is teaching his disciples is to live a life of selflessness, to take up their cross daily and to die to themselves. Really, the issue with this rich young ruler wasn't just that he loved his stuff more than he loved Jesus. It was that he longed for his own happiness more than the pleasure of God in his life. I mean, just think about this. If Jesus really does love us more than anything, then what's keeping us from loving him more than everything? The answer is nothing more than a careful examination away. You treasure what you love. You love whom you choose to treasure. So if your life is wrapped up in money and in what money can buy, then that's what your treasure is and that's where your heart will be also. But if your life is wrapped up in you and what makes you happy, then you've self set yourself up to be your own God. And you bow down at your own feet in self-worship. I'm keeping my money. And I'm doing what I want to with my time. And I'm using my energy as I please. Because life is all about me. The prospect of eternal treasure is sometimes less appealing than the temporary riches of the world. But it is never of equal or lesser value. The truth is, treasure in Christ always outweighs and outmeasures the temporary riches of this earth. So don't be duped by the tug and pull on your heartstrings to get more because you deserve more. Because in the end, you're not the king who's seated on the throne getting all the honor and glory and praise from the people that you've made or from the stuff that you've accumulated or from the things that you've done the Lord is the one who's seated upon the throne and in the end if you love money if you love yourself more than anyone else you'll find nothing but purposelessness as you wander away from the faith 
and heartache as you pierce yourself through with many griefs. Jesus loves you, and he wants you to love him more than anything. So you need to treasure him more than you do your stuff or yourself. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment? I'm going to ask you two questions, and I just want you to reflect upon these questions in your own heart. Maybe thinking about how you've spent your time or your money or what you've been doing with your life here recently. What are some things that you love more than Jesus? Say, Jake, I don't have anything like that in my life, man. If that's the case, then we all ought to be walking with God faithfully every moment of every day. What's something that's hindered you from walking with God? What is there in your life that you love more than Jesus? That you treasure more than Him? Now, as you identify those things with your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, I want you to to come to this point. Come to this point when you understand that Jesus did not make you to love those things like you've been loving them. And really, the problem isn't with the money that you have but the person who has the money. Yeah, the the problem is you. And I don't say that because I hate you or because I want to judge you or because I'm better than you. Look, I say that because I love you. And I say that because Jesus loves you. Jesus made you to love him. So just the next couple moments in prayer... I'm going to ask you to talk to God and to tell Him that you know you've been living for yourself. But that instead of putting yourself on the throne, you want Him to be seated on the throne of your heart. And you want to treasure Him above your stuff and above yourself. Would you just spend a couple moments in prayer there with the Lord. Father God, we come to you tonight and we confess what you already know. Lord, there are times in our own lives when we love, prioritize, and treasure things above you. God, help us to see 
that the clothes we wear and the cars we drive and the houses that we live in and the, the food that we eat and all of the hobbies that we involve ourselves in are not near as important and can never bring us the satisfaction that you can because of who you are. Father God, we ask for your help as we seek to remove ourselves from the pedestals that we've placed our lives upon. You didn't make us to be gods. You made us to worship the one true God. So God, we get off of our seats of honor tonight. And instead of seeking you to come to us and give us what we want, we come before your throne and bow our knees at your feet and lower our heads to the ground before you. And we say, God, would you reign and rule in my heart and in my life? And would you help me to treasure you and to love you more than anything or anyone else, including myself? Father God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for showing compassion and mercy and patience toward us as we seek daily to die to ourselves and to follow your son Jesus. May we do so, whatever the cost. It's in the name of your son we pray. And everybody said.